0: was the small farmers' rum. Like they would have portable stills and they would um make the they didn't have the means to um, you know, make rum from molasses. They decided to just take the raw product and distill on these portable pot stills. So like it was kind of known around Martinique with the small farmers that the agricultural rum from the farmers was made from sugarcane juice. And then the industrial rum um was made from molasses. <laughs>
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me, whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on My thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so, with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Decoding Cocktails. I'm Chris LeBeau. Before we get started today, I just want to say that today's episode is brought to you by people like Jim. Jim is one of many of my patrons that is enjoying various monthly benefits. I created this patron program because I've run into things over and over again where people have said, hey, I really want to continue working with you and trying to find ways that are affordable and accessible rather than always being private classes, be that virtual or in person. Uh, The idea that you could pay in for a small monthly rate for things like gated content, tours of the liquor store, and coming up in the not-too-distant future, a class on fall and Halloween-related cocktails. So if you are interested... Patreon.com slash Decoding Cocktails, and shoot me a note if you have any questions. My guest today is Kiowa Bryan. She is the National Brand Manager and Marketing Director for Spirabomb. Spirabomb is a company that has a number of brands in it, and uh, it includes uh, great products like Chairman's Reserve and Joseph Cartron. Uh, Assuming I'm saying that right, I have a French last name, but I do not speak French, But the reason why I tracked Kiowa down is I was particularly interested to talk about rum agricole. And so Spearbaum also holds uh, rum Clement and rum GM. Uh, Us gringos, again, might know it as rum JM, uh, but if you were saying in the proper French, it would be GM. And so Kiowa's story is actually uh, pretty fun in that she was working at a bar and restaurant called the Evelee in West Hollywood. A link to it will be in there because it is absolutely beautiful. She said they had a ton of rum on the bar, but what was really interesting is that when her now boss, Ben Jones, was giving her an orientation on rum agricole from the island of Martinique, uh, she was really captivated by it. And so she went home, did all of her own research on Martinique, the history of agricole, and eventually emailed Ben and said, hey, when are you next going to be in Martinique because I have to come down and get a tour, and really dive in deep. So from there, it really became very all-consuming for her. And as I think I heard her say separately, she wrote up a job description, and for the next year, 18 months, would every once in a while uh, send it to Ben until he ended up hiring her into her current role with the company. So uh, props to Kiowa for having the hustle to do that. She is also a board member for Another Round, Another Rally. And This is an important thing to talk about, too, because COVID really helped exacerbate but also create conversational change around things like work-life balance, proper pay and benefits, the things that make hospitality uh, a more sustainable landing ground for people as opposed to something that is like, oh, this is what I'm going to do until I get my life together. And so they are helping raise uh, the conversation about important issues like tipping. Uh, Tipping is something that while it might feel good to leave a big tip, that uh, it leaves kind of an unbalanced playing field. And so Kiowa has sent me a couple of links. And so we're going to kind of dig into that a little bit too. Uh, Her Instagram, quickly before I forget, is absolutely stunning. So I highly recommend that. Keep up with her for all things agricole, but also just uh, she talked a little bit about kind of uh, just enjoying curating that. And so she is at rum, R-H-U-M, muffin, rum muffin. A couple of things that I found useful to think about. So rum agricole, uh, it has what's called an AOC. That is a French term that I dare not try to pronounce, but essentially it is like champagne. It can only be technically made on the island of Martinique. And one thing I found interesting is that it's, Protocols are so tightly regulated that she said, you know, if it says rum agricole and it is from the island of Martinique, it's just, it's going to be great because it, you can't have that label and it not be awesome. That said, at present, there are roughly only seven or so certified AOC distilleries. That said, one of the things we talked about a little bit that I would be, I need to do some more research on, maybe we could talk more about in a further conversation as she said, there are a handful of distilleries right now on the island that actually are not certified. And I don't know how much of this is them not having gotten around to it yet, but it also makes me think of a broader conversation happening in the agave field, which is there are a number of products now coming to the market which essentially call themselves uh, agave distillate. And when we're talking broadly about rum as a category, if you will, it's sugarcane distillate because cachaça— is sugarcane distillate. It's not technically rum, even though it's very, very close. But so, are these craft distilleries, for lack of a better term, gaming to kind of actually not call themselves agricole because they want to get a little bit more playful? And people could feel various ways about that, but that would be really interesting to know. Uh, Something that we did not get to in the interview that I won't take up too much time on now, but there will be a link to it, is... uh, Sugar cane versus sugar beets. So uh, many, many years ago, I believe if my history is correct, it was Napoleon Bonaparte said, hey, the French Empire is not going to use sugar cane anymore for sugar production. We're going to use sugar beets. And so that created a real issue for Martinique in particular because they, uh, and this was true in a lot of colonial America, or the colonial New World, but Martinique could primarily really only sell their stuff other French colonies or the French mainland. And so when suddenly France didn't want its primary export anymore, what are you going to do? And so that is part of what pushed things um, to be where Martinique now makes the rum primarily the way it does. I'll have a link into what sugar cane versus sugar beets are in there. Um, It is also, of course, important when talking about uh, colonies to recognize that for a long period of time, uh, people in Martinique might not have been paid or paid well. Uh, there are still occasionally, uh, in more recent history, have been um, protests against uh, treatment and wages. And so it's just an important thing that when we are talking oftentimes uh, about sugarcane distillate, to remember that there is a very hard and ugly history to a lot of this stuff, Um so I um, the final thing I wanted to talk about, because you hear about this in Agave, but you know, with sugarcane distillates, so rum agricole, um, because we are they are juicing fresh sugarcane and putting it right into fermentation and distillation, uh, where and how it is grown makes a huge difference. And so things we might not think about. there are countless varietals of sugarcane out there. And Keel was quick to say that while the plant itself has an impact, where and how it's grown also makes a big difference. Uh, you know, As you move across the relatively small island of Martinique, the climate changes. The soil changes. There are volca- volcanic areas. You have more areas heavily influenced by uh, Atlantic breezes versus tropical natures on the Caribbean side. And so that is part of what really influences the variety and flavor you might experience. Okay, That is what I've got for this uh, episode. Uh, Enjoy my conversation with Kiowa. Give her a follow. And definitely, definitely, if you don't know Agricole, get out there and have some. It is awesome. Kiowa, thanks so much for taking some time to talk today. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm a little uh, rusty on podcasts. It's been a, a while, so I'm excited to to chat.
1: Well, the good news is we go easy on our guests for about the first five minutes, so good news. Oh, so, great. <laughs> uh, where I usually like to start is, is there a moment, a time, a memory you remember kind of falling in love with or deciding you wanted to really commit to this industry here?
0: Um, I mean, I kind of, my first job ever, uh, was at a ski resort, um, being a bus person, um, at the age of 16. So I kind of fell into the hospitality industry at a pretty young age. Um, and then I would say my next job was working at Starbucks as a barista. So that kind of set me up for the bartending, um, community. Uh, I think after making, you know, half calf venti uh skim extra hot all foam lattes or whatever at seven in the morning for a line of people out the door um really teaches you how to multitask and um it it really gave me an appreciation for bartending when I started you know working behind the bar and I already kind of had that multitasking skill um so I yeah I definitely was like set up to appreciate the beverage industry from working in hospitality for now over you know it was it was I've worked in the hospitality slash food and beverage space now for over 20 years so um it was always kind of in my blood I guess and um so it wasn't necessarily a a defined moment um but from a very young age I appreciated um everything that is food and beverage
1: So if somebody was thinking about, you know, bartending as a career at some point, you know, obviously getting experience behind the bar and in the restaurant itself would be valuable. But do you think if they're like, well, what should I do first is getting a job at a shop like a Starbucks or their local coffee shop, uh, a great place in terms of being able to manage, you know, six custom orders at one time. Is that, does that ring true for you?
0: A hundred percent. Um, yeah i think i think the skill of managing the stress of multitasking um that you would need to work behind a coffee bar um as well as the you know you're not always working behind the coffee bar oftentimes you're working the register and you're dealing with customers and that customer service aspect as well is so important those are two like really important things um skills you know that you can apply to bartending whereas I mean, no offense to all the bartending schools there are, but um, they're never going to give you the skills uh, that you need to be a successful bartender, which the most important thing to be a successful bartender is to be a a human. So um, yeah, I think a coffee shop is a great place to start or just be a bar back, um, you know, in a bar is also a great place to start if you're interested.
1: That uh, makes me think of my uh, business education and uh, getting into the business world and realizing, well, business isn't quite like what I learned in school. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, but you probably know a lot of equations and statistics. So, you know, right? Maybe one day I, I took a lot of uh, theater classes, and um, you know, growing up, and um, now I get to apply them when I, you know, do presentations or education. So, it, it all. It all, you know, it's all relative. It all works out, I guess.
1: So speaking of theater, and I don't know if this would be related to uh, your background at all in that, but one thing I couldn't help notice as I was getting prepared for our interview was uh, the palette of your Instagram is very compelling and seems to kind of have this like consistent theme that slowly flows in and out. Uh, Is this a long time passion interest like it was it was it's beautiful so tell tell me a little bit about that
0: um thank you uh yes uh i i I don't know how that started I really i I guess being an artist in some capacity like I did a lot of theater growing up um a lot of you know like regional musical theater and then initially I moved I moved from I grew up in Vermont did regional theater there and then moved to New York to try and you know, get on Broadway, uh, and that didn't necessarily work out. But I fell in love with uh, the restaurant business, so and the bar and bartending, so that part worked out. Um, but I also like did a lot of theater, and I took I played piano growing. I mean, uh, sorry, I did a lot of uh, musical um, things, like I played the piano and um, sang, and um, so I I guess maybe there's a tie in there, but uh, I definitely think in a little bit of, uh, I love colors and I, I, I'm not necessarily like an art aficionado by any capacity, but, um, especially over the last few years I've taken, especially over the pandemic and my role, I've taken on a more marketing role with, um, photography and social media focus. Um, and so I just think it's very important. I find, I mean, this, the, I know now, uh, in social media, everything is changing constantly. And like, it's not about having a pretty homepage on your Instagram and um, it's all about being real and like uh, not having, you know, it's all about reels and videos and whatnot. But to me, like that landing page is kind of like a summary, a quick snapshot of, of you. And um, I just, I like to have the organized colors and have a theme and have a direction. And I guess maybe I'm a little, you uh, too organized in that way but um, yeah I like I maybe it's a snapshot of me I like to plan things out and I like things to to look organized Um, but yeah it's definitely I definitely don't have as much time to curate it as much as I as I want to but when I do post something I make sure that it's deliberate and intentional and it fits.
1: You know, uh, sometimes you just got to say to hell with that algorithm and do whatever makes you feel good. So 100% that's
0: That's how I feel. Maybe not for our brands. It's like, you know, social media, I try and I try and play with the algorithms and and play play nice with them, if you will, and stay up to date with them. But uh, for my own, it's just for me. And it's like, I guess that is how I am fuck the algorithm this is me <laughs> sorry can i can i say the f word on here
1: you can say the f word on here that's just Perfect. fine
0: thank you
1: this is a podcast by adults for adults etc so uh, so i uh one i am excited to be able to talk about rum because it is certainly my great love too but if i remember correctly so you were in los angeles working at what I saw and we'll have a link to this at a place called the Eveli, Uh, and uh, it is it was striking but uh, if I remember correctly Kiowa you had uh, a whole bunch more rums like on the they were either there or you put them there then were warranted and so was that kind of your introduction or it was that the moment you got pulled into rum at that point in time
0: no um I guess yes, and no, um I actually didn't realize until years later that um my boss uh Ben Jones, who is the uh great grandnephew of Omer Clamont um and so Rum Clamont is his family's uh name and you know his, it's his family lineage uh I didn't realize until a few years later that I had met him when he'd done a brief presentation at my first like legitimate um craft cocktail school type thing uh it was when i opened soho house in west hollywood and he had come and done a presentation on rum agricole um i just remembered like a really tall man with french rum and i didn't really know what rum agricole meant um sorry ben but i guess it didn't quite resonate with me because even after that training i was like i I, you know i was was a little confused about what it what it was and i think that's obviously because this was like a, a it was like a training camp for um, to break all the bad habits that all of us bartenders had from working in you know nightclubs and um, and dive bars and whatnot, which you know great skills to have, but then to go to a very regimented, like template-driven um, milk and honey style cocktail program. So it was just like a lot of information coming at us, le- learning about a lot of spirits, a lot of flashcards, a lot of like. Um, trial extra uh, speed trials and all that type of stuff so it kind of went over my head that that's what we had learned about on that day until I met him a couple years later Um, and uh, it was a training that he did at Scopa in Los Angeles about rum agricole um, that really kind of turned me on to how unique it was um simultaneously maybe just before that my boss at the Eveli um Dave Kuczynski who now runs a wonderful bar called Maruno in Silver Lake that I highly I highly suggest everybody go to um he had made me a shift drink after work that was what he called a tea punch um and I never heard of it before um I mean this is probably she's now like uh, time where does it go I guess this was like uh, 11 years ago or something 12 years ago um, and I was just like blown away I was like how is this just three ingredients and I mean granted he made it as I still see a lot of bartenders do like on a snow cone with pebble ice uh, which is more like uh, you know more like a really strong daiquiri snow cone uh, with rum agricole but just like the simple flavors of the agricultural. It was like so different. I was familiar with cachaça, but it was like so different than cachaça. Um, So different than a caparina, but like there was still that like raw essence of sugar cane that you just didn't get with molasses rum. And um, those two things, like the experience of meeting Ben at that SCOPA training and Dave giving me the tea punch, um, just really, I'm, I'm one of those people that when I get my mind set on something, I like go down the wormhole. And I just like, you know, I, I went home, I got on my computer, I learned all I could about Martinique. And then I booked a ticket to Martinique. I mean, I I, I got in contact with Ben and was like, if I what are you going to be in Martinique? Like, I'm going to book a ticket, tell me when to come like, will you just show me around? And um, yeah, I mean, that was when there were very few flights to Martinique. It was like a 24 hour experience that cost like $1,600 round trip. And I was just like, I don't care. I'm doing it. I'm going, I have to see it. I'm obsessed now. And um, yeah, I guess the rest is history. So it was specifically Rum agricole, and those that coincidence of events that really changed everything for me.
1: I, I still remember the first time I tasted uh, and smelled agricole and it was just like, you know, it's just like, it, th- there are those moments, like my first sip and, and taste of Amaro where I'm like, I've not, I've not done this before. What is this? Uh, so we are growing and I want to talk about sugar cane versus sugar beets a little bit too, but so we're growing a sugar cane plant and then we have crushed it. We have some juice from that stocky sugar cane, in most cases, we go on to make sugar. And one of the byproducts of sugar is molasses. So most rums that people have tasted, uh, are going to be molasses based rums. Now, if you're in Martinique, Haiti, uh, Brazil, you are taking that sugarcane juice and fermenting and distilling it. So you're getting a much more grassy, like lively flavor. First thing to make sure. So th- is that accurate for the audience right there.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it is. It is kind of an sugar sugarcane, if you will. Okay. Rather than a molasses distillate.
1: Sure. And so uh, a lot of people may still more of like be familiar with uh, a caipirinha compared to uh, a tea punch or cachaça compared to agricole, at least with the analogy. How would you describe, and I know that both are multifaceted, but Is there a high level way to think about the difference between a cachaça and a rum agricole?
0: Um, I mean, well, both have, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of people think that rum has no rules. Um, Both have a pretty strict set of rules. Um, But uh, I would say that generally, you know, the rum that the cachaça that we uh, that you taste in Brazil. Um well first of all let me just say that you never tell a uh, martinican that like cachaça is similar to uh agricole and never tell brazilian <laughs> that rum agricole is similar yes they are very they are very similar in retrospect but um i would say that like the the biggest difference um would be to me, the rules around Martinique rum, rum agricole are that they have to; it has to be distilled in a particular column still um, to a certain degree level. Uh, whereas cachaca can be distilled in a pot still as well. Um, so, rum agricole from Martinique uh, definitely is a little bit more refined because of that column still. So, generally, overall, everything that is AOC rum agricole from Martinique is very consistent and that it was distilled to the same degrees between 65 and 75 degrees on the same still um, obviously there's still differences depending on the terroir and the sugarcane and all that stuff but in um, uh, in Brazil there's a lot there's a lot more room for interpretation even though they have the rules um, you know you can distill just have, being able to use two different types of stills really, Makes the differences vast. Um, so you know you can you can distill cachaça on a pot still. Um, you can distill it on a column still, and you know as as you probably know, some of the column stills that it's distilled on are, are very large um, column stills that remove flavor, um, and then some of the pot stills, you know. Are smaller and don't remove a lot of flavor, so you can imagine the level of congeners, the difference between the congeners. It's just like a wider base, even with the rules that they have. Um, whereas rum agriculture Martinique is very consistent because I honestly, but still, really makes it more consistent um, in being that refined
1: product. Yeah, because at this point, there are only seven uh, distilleries on Martinique. Is that correct? Or it could have changed, but is it seven?
0: Well, that's an interesting thing as well, because there are now um, some... That is accurate for uh, AOC distilleries, but there's a lot of uh, distilleries popping up that are not... A lot, I would say probably three or... I know there are two or three that are working but i know there's some others that are popping up as well but they're bringing in pot stills and they're just not adhering to the aoc laws or not yet um so i unfortunately have not spent a lot of time uh in martinique since the pandemic started so i'm a little rusty on what's happened in the last uh in the last three years but um yeah, the last that I heard, there's definitely at least three non-AOC distilleries that are in, you know, at least in the works or have are producing rum currently in Martinique and outside Martinique.
1: Yeah. So first I guess we're getting into a little bit of the whole uh what you're running into in uh agave here. Uh you know, one, you have a craft industry popping up, but also like this destilados de agave, you know, you know, aguardiente, you know, like, hey, we're we're gonna distill stuff and we don't necessarily have to have the label, uh, we're just going to make delicious sugarcane distillate, regardless of whether we can call it uh, agricole or not.
0: Yeah, I mean, you don't want to get me started on that because I'm going to piss off a bunch of American sugarcane juice da- distillate um, producers. But um, no, I mean, if you look at the European, the European designation for rum agricole, um, which is kind of, you know, a pretty decent standard to follow um, for the category of rum. Um, it must come from, you know, one of those designated French departments. Um, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, the the AOC, which for those of you that don't know, uh, the Appellation d'Orgine um, is like a, a government, uh, a French governmental uh, group that uh, basically mandates that certain agricultural French products that come from a specific geographical designation tastes exactly like they're supposed to depending on where they're geographically located so um this is why cognac comes from cognac and champagne can only come from champagne and camembert cheese can only come from a certain region of france and you know even um breast ducks or i'm sorry breast chickens uh you know lavender de provence all of these agricultural products of france like have to follow a very strict system of rules in order to get that geographic designation and aoc on their label Um, so we have the same type of thing with rum agricole and martinique and that's something that you know began to be developed in the 70s and it wasn't until 1996 that we actually had approved the the rules for the martinique aoc Um, so you know it's not like something that's new and that you know is trendy and we just started deciding this is how we do it like it it was decades in the making and and yes the rules you know they adapt and and change as as we change and production changes but um they're pretty consistent from what they were in 1996 when they first you know came out and were uh approved so um we do know you know martinique does know a a thing or two about sugar cane juice this so you know it it is a little frustrating when um people are just like this is a rum agricole and it's like but no it's not because we spent decades developing those rules and then more decades honing them in so you can't just say it's rum agricole um just like you can't say it's a a calvados if it's an ap- yeah, apple brandy
1: Yeah I um uh, yeah I've definitely seen the uh uh sugarcane distillates here in the US that have uh, agricole written on them and it's kind of like be kinda like, you know, someone in uh I don't know, in France being like, Here's here's our Texas barbecue right here. People in Texas would be like, Let's fight right now. So
0: uh, <laughs> Yeah, or that one American champagne. Just kidding. Yeah, no, no, no offense. No names, but Donuts. we all know what it is. <laughs> it,
1: it's out there. So one thing I was a little unclear about. So I wanna talk about Beets versus Sugar King. But so if I'm understanding this correctly, so uh, Martinique was producing uh, sugarcane that was being primarily distributed uh, to, to France. This goes back to the colonial period right here. And at some point, likely out, out of a matter of economics, uh, the French started using sugar beets instead of sugarcane. And so, so immediately there's not a demand for Martinique sugar from uh, the sugarcane plant. And so there's not, molasses so they'd been making a lot of more traditional rum which you guys might think of as uh rum from uh uh mount gay and barbados or you know so so different types of what are called industrial rum so they're they're making more industrial rum but at that point in time they're like well we don't even have the molasses to make rum so let's just use the sugar cane juice so is it true that it was primarily in economic driver that led to uh the sugarcane juice distillate kind of becoming the primary route is that is that accurate
0: Yeah i mean the the terminology rum agricole um kind of you know even even though now we we have you know applied it to the AOC but um in the early 1800s um agricole was the agriculture it was the small farmers rum like they would have portable stills and they would um, make the they didn't have the means to um, you know make rum from molasses they decided to just take the raw product and distill on these portable pot stills. so like it was kind of known around Martinique with the small farmers that the agricultural rum from the farmers was made from sugarcane juice and then the industrial rum um, was made from molasses because as you said there was there was a lot of, uh, you know, there was a lot of molasses production in Martinique, um, you know, in the colonial times. So that switchover absolutely had a lot to do with the fact that um, Martinique was an island that the primary crop was sugarcane, and all of a sudden the demand was gone. So, what were they going to do with all of this crop? Um, because the farmers had already, you know, kind of developed and, and, you know kind of made their own way and with this other type of rum um, and that's a little bit where Omer Clément, who founded Rum Clamont um, I mean and this is a little bit of a tangent but it's a good story um, he uh, he kind of became known as the godfather of rum agricole because he saw what the small farmers were doing and he saw it as that as an opportunity to continue to um, you know, help the economy from going into a recession. Um, so he really pushed that agenda to make the switch and still utilize a sugar cane, not make it go to waste. Um, the reason he was able to do that, I mean, aside from the fact that he was, you know, a, a doctor, he was what what we think, what records seem to show uh, is that he was the first, um, he was the first black um, doctor in Martinique. Um, he went to France, he got his doctorate in uh, medicine, and then he came back to Martinique. So um, that's what the records seem to point to. Uh, he also was a politician. So it wasn't necessarily that he was an agricultur- agriculturalist or a rum maker, but he saw that as a politician, the opportunity to help his island. Um, that all kind of happened to coincide with the fact that in 1902 there was like the largest um, well the second largest volcanic disaster in recorded history which the first was Mount Vesuvius the second was the eruption of Mount Pele the famous volcano in Martinique uh, which mer- which killed instantly uh, 30,000 people and completely annihilated the capital of the then capital st. Pierre um, so the story that Relates to this is that um, Omer Clément was the uh, mayor of La Francois, which is on the east coast of Martinique. The capital is on the west coast. The then capital, uh, Saint Pierre, and they were holding elections uh, right in May, right when when you know the eruption was about to happen. And he went over to the other to the west coast to the elections, and he saw the volcano was smoking, and he was like, "This thing is going to blow!" Like we need to cancel the elections. And everybody was like, no, no, no. And like, no joke from what I've read. Um, the local scientist who was a high school student, uh, said, no, there's no way this is going to erupt. It might just have local damage, but it's never going to make it to the capital." Um, and additionally, uh, stories say that there were like footlong centipedes coming out of the volcano and like four foot long snakes killing livestock all around the volcano. And still, all of the government officials were like, "You know, we're listening to this scientist. He says nothing's gonna happen. We're gonna stay. mayor, if you don't stay, you can consider yourself like excommunicated as the uh, mayor of La Francois. So he was like, "Cool, you guys are crazy. I'm gonna go back to the West coast. like I would love to be a part of your elections, but um, see you later. And um, what happened was the next day, the volcano erupted, it completely, Uh, annihilated everything in that in the capital, including every government official. And so he was the only government official left in Martinique. Um, So it's a crazy story. But because of that, he became the deputy mayor of Martinique. And so he was, he had the political power to influence, uh, you know the changeover of molasses rum to sugarcane rum because at that time like you know his his island was suffering economically and he saw that as an opportunity to help you know build it back up. So crazy story, but true.
1: You had me at footlong centipedes. I Yeah am, said I just, no
0: one ever <laughs>
1: whew, God. Yeah, I remember seeing the uh, the Pele piece, but thank you for also um adding some context there. That is honestly very helpful. So something that, you know, despite obviously being a fairly contained area, it does seem that, you know, I feel like a more popular conversation in spirits right now is the microclimates that seem to really exist in and around Oaxaca quite a bit in terms of that influences Mezcal. But it does seem that Martinique, you know, what was it like take two hours or an hour and a half to cross the island, something like that? Mm hmm. But that uh, what you might find on the Atlantic coast versus on the Caribbean side, or however you would get into it, really can influence the climate dramatically. So obviously, this is a way of diving into it. But when we think about the breadth of flavor that you can experience in agriculture, some of that's going to be the sugarcane plant, some of that's going to be the climate, Um, when uh, When people are tasting like a flight of agricole, for example, what are some of the flavors they might encounter that might drive that?
0: Um, You're absolutely right. Uh, Martinique, though it is small, it's only about 420 square miles. So, I mean, it's, you know, the size of Los Angeles, um, smaller than Los Angeles. Um, It is very different from you know, the different altitudes to there's arid sections of it compared to if you drive to uh, Rum GM, uh, which is in the northmost part of the island. uh, Ironically, we we play Jurassic Park when we're driving people over the bend for the first time because you're literally in a jungle. Um, So, you know, it is very vast. The the differences and you can taste it's very interesting because with all of those laws that we have with the AOC it makes it easier almost to compare the the terroir or the influence of the elements um between each distillery because they're pretty spread out like all the AOC distilleries and you know that they're making the rum essentially the same way because of how strict the laws are so it's a cool um you know it's a cool base point um to be able to, to compare them. Uh, initially, like I would say some of the influence between our brands in the North, Rum GM in the North, um, aside from the fact that, uh, we use a water source of the natural spring that's within the volcano. So that adds a lot of minerality and almost a little bit of like viscosity to the rum. Um, there's more of a fruity element like all of the rums have a little bit more of a fruity component to them um and then you know as opposed to especially when you get into our aged rums and that's something people often don't talk about like they talk about terroir is something that only you can taste in the unaged products but um and here's a here's a, a new thing for us we're actually heard here first um as we've increased production in um with all of our products we've done, we've started producing a lot of rum clement at GM, um, because very quick backstory, uh, in 1989, we stopped, uh, producing rum clement at rum clement at the actual, uh, visitor center that you can go to. It's now for, for many years has been a museum. So you can go to the distillery and like look inside the stills and the fermentation tanks and stuff. Um, but we, at that time we moved uh, distillation down the street to a distillery called Simone, which also may, also makes it at HSE, um, the owner of that distillery is in the family of the owner of the Clement of Speerbaum. so it just made sense. Um, and then uh, a couple of years ago, we started sourcing some of our rum from GM because we own that distillery; we have full control over it. Over the hours we make the rum and whatnot. Um, so recently, we've moved more of our production for both rums up to GM which you would think would make uh, the flavor less different. But it is very interesting with bringing, there, we're still bringing sugarcane for Clermont, um up to the distillery. So it's still sugarcane that's closer to Clermont. Um And likewise, the aging process could not be more different. The flavors of the rum, once it, it ages, there's so much, uh influence that is way different with clement than with gm like gm overall is still way fruitier across the board spicier fruitier a little bit of like anise licorice across the board to all of the skews whereas clement is much more savory black pepper like saline like a ocean sea influence um with all of their rum so even those the rum is being made at the same place which it's, it's very much like cognac. You're kind of giving, given a recipe um, to adhere to and like specific guidelines to adhere to. So like our two quality control teams are always at, at GM, like tasting the rum that comes off and making sure it's, it adheres to the specific um, specifications for Clement if they're going to bring it to Clamont. Um, even still like producing it at the same place, it is completely different. The white rums are completely different and they still keep those characteristics um which is something pretty normal in Martinique I mean La Monique produces La Monique and trois Vert, uh Depaz produces Bailly um and others that are escaping me at this moment but um yeah it's pretty it's pretty and obviously like uh uh Simone produces HSE they did produce Clomont they produce a bunch of rum for bulk um so anyway yeah um I feel like I went off a little bit on a tangent, but yes, absolutely. Uh, all of these factors contribute: the water source, um, the the soil, which the soil near a volcano is obviously quite different in composition than the soil at the south side of the island that you know didn't have a volcanic eruption in recent years. Um, and then the fact that Martinique is um, the east coast is the Atlantic Ocean, and the west coast is the Caribbean. So any distillery on the East coast gets a lot more ocean influence than the distilleries on the West coast. Cause it's like very calm and, um, there's not, you know, there's not as much aggressive wind and weather. So, and then the sugarcane varietals also, you know, come into play, not as much as everybody likes to romanticize about, but they do contribute different flavors.
1: Got it. So to kind of rank order things, the, uh, climate and soil, uh, are likely going to play a bigger input than necessarily the the sugarcane varietal. Not that that won't contribute, but uh, Elevation, Terroir, et cetera, are going to really be the primary drivers.
0: Yeah, I I wouldn't say that it doesn't contribute. It definitely does the varietal. But I would say that um, more so people are not necessarily in Martinique choosing to grow a sugarcane varietal because of its flavor all the time. I mean I will say definitely like con blue is something that is unique it has a very sweet concentrated sugarcane flavor profile but it also produces very low yield it's tough to grow um so it's more of like something that a, a lot of distilleries are uh are using as like a seasoning to their more you know bulky higher producing rums because at the end of the day like rum agricole is the you know the biggest money maker uh, economy driver on the island so they have to make rum as much as possible um and and um it be as effective as possible with their crops because there's only one crop of sugarcane here you grow one crop that's it for the year and you have to produce as much rum as possible so um the the varietals though you know to make sure that they are all varietals that, um, are approved and are, are flavorful and are of good quality. They do need to be approved by the AOC as well. So in 96, when that document came out, uh, there were only 12 varieties that were approved. Um, now we're at 25 varieties, although the document doesn't actually state that anymore. It just states that there's a four year, like uh, probational period, um, where, in, in, in Martinique, we have a sugarcane institute that basically um, monitors all the different varieties of sugarcane and um, tries different varieties. And after a four year probation period of them trying and like seeing what varieties are going to work, they'll decide which ones to add. So at this point, we have 25 varieties, but um, most producers are growing the type of sugarcane that grows best in their soil. So the soil definitely contributes but certain varieties are going to grow better in the North than in the South. So that more so dictates the variety of sugar cane that you're using less than the individual flavor, which, you know, is not the most romantic thing, but it's a business and you know, it's the economy. So I, I've been to Kohana in uh, Hawaii, which is a really cool sugarcane juice distillate or um, distillery, distillate distillery. And like, it's, Amazing to see. I feel like they have 35 varieties of sugar cane and they're all so different. And with a naked eye, you can just see like some are strut candy stripes, some are black, some are. I mean, that is just like the most beautiful story, and it's so cool to see. Um, but like, you know, in Martinique we're we're talking about millions of <laughs> millions and millions of gallons a year. I think at this point, like we're producing it gm 2 million um leaders of 110 proof rum a year so you know like we we gotta we gotta balance the romanticism with the efficiency <laughs> in some way
1: gotta gotta feed the economy for sure
0: 100 percent.
1: so to all the uh uh non-french speaking uh americans out there listening uh so uh, when Kiowa is saying, uh, if you're like, what the heck is J-M? Uh, that is, uh, you might know it is Rum J-M, just like it's not Rum Clement, it's Rum Clement. Uh, or I've got a French last name, but that's about it. But so anyway, so uh, when the first time I ever heard you say GM. I was like, what's that? And then I was like, okay, it's JM. So all that to say, we're throwing a lot of terms at you guys. Those will all be in the show notes for anything you want to know about any brands or anything like that. So just a little uh, French primer there for you guys.
0: Um, When I order a rum clement at a, at a restaurant often, I do start out by saying I'll take the clement and then, and then we see how it goes from there just, just to make things baseline. So yeah, I apologize. So sometimes uh forget i don't i don't speak french fluently but the last 2 years i've tried um so sometimes i forget
1: <laughs> yeah if you get the side eye from the bartender you're like oh, okay we're on the same page got it all right great so,
0: right so- T- tie punch tea punch you know
1: <laughs> so i um uh, i read and i don't know how much it comes down to we talked about that the aoc is very highly regulated and keeps quality of a great standard there but I did read. I think it was actually in um, Oh Jim Meehan's book, uh, and he interviews Ben Jones in that book, uh, *Bartender's Manual*. But I think it was there that they talked about that um, there could be have been some French techniques picked up from Calvados and cognac production. I didn't know how much of that Kiowa might have just been a rigor versus actual were actual processes imported from France do you know anything about that
0: um it's funny that you say that because I talked to Ben before this and I was like where where is there this article that says this and he was like I don't know I feel like I said it somewhere and he couldn't remember where he said it anyway um not so much Calvados I, I would say um but uh but yeah I the first kind of whatever, everything hundreds and hundreds of years ago is kind of up to speculation. And, you know, if it was whatever bits and pieces are recorded, so it's kind of hard to say, but, um, the only thing that I've really come across, uh, is, um, in research is that it's thought that in the, in 1650, so, um, Martinique was colonized in sixteen thirty five so this makes sense a bit and start bringing over different French things and apparatuses and comforts of life um so in sixteen fifty um there is a French cleric uh named Jean baptiste du uh who is thought to have brought over a pot still, probably a cognac still um in order to you know start distilling sugar cane juice um and but that and and I a pot still was kind of the way as far as I know until like the mid 19th century um and then of course people wanted to adapt to be more efficient and create more product um and then that's when the column still got brought over but it wasn't it wasn't the, you know, two column uh, coffee still, it was a single column still kind of like the one we use today, but it was specifically for sugar beets because sugar beets were so big at the time, as you were saying, you know, there's a lot of his French history tied to sugar beets as well, Napoleon, you know, uh, essentially okayed uh, the production of sugar beets and and funded um, sugar beet farms in France, um, which, Compiled with slavery uh, being garbage and um, taxes that Napoleon also screwed over uh, some of the French Caribbean with, um, compiled kind of was the reason for the sugar crisis. So um, yeah, sugar beets were already such a big thing, and um, they were just dist- making sugar cane, sugar beet distillate in a in a single column still um, that then was brought over to Martinique and those habits were kind of adapted. Um, I don't, I, I was talking to Ben about this too before. I mean, I don't really know why they decided to go exactly with the, with this single column still with rum agricole, the AOC, but I, I would suspect it's because sugarcane juice is so volatile. And so, you know, it's very necessary to distill it as soon as possible. So if you're trying to Um, if, you know, we can only harvest once a year, we can only harvest in the dry season, which is from January to September, um, to the beginning of September, so the end of August. So if you need to harvest all of that sugar cane in the dry season over the entire island, you really need something that's going to quickly distill. Um, So that is, you know, higher yield, more, more efficient um, way to, you know, distill more product faster in that short window that we have um, so that's why I think we ended up adopting the the column still is the a o c way to go um by by adapting the plate so there's you know it's a smaller still um it's basically like a, a a very tiny two column still uh with one column stacked on top of the uh of the other um so you have like the analyzer and the rectifier column in one um but Yeah, I mean, uh, that way you're really able to quickly distill all of that sugarcane juice before it spoils because otherwise it will spoil. I mean, in in like Haiti, oftentimes they're distilling sugarcane juice when they have it, but then they're boiling it into a sugarcane honey so they can distill that later. So it won't spoil, but that's not an option for us in Martinique. So, so column still it is.
1: Yeah. The, uh, often shortage on, yeah. Trying cane juice in the States is possible, but it's, uh, it's not, 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 not readily available. Kind of like trying to get your hands on pool K although it's probably even harder, but, uh, yeah, got it. That that's helpful. And I, I appreciate that there's probably just some nuance in terms of what that is. And I'll have to figure out what source I saw. I promise I didn't make it up, but, uh, someone was referencing that. So I'll have to look that up and see where I found that from. So.
0: No, I think you're right. I think Ben just doesn't remember, um,
1: after a while, after a while, you've forgotten more than you remember, right? So
0: a hundred percent.
1: So I've also heard you before talk about, so getting stuff into more tactical things for people out there that are like, okay, I've, I've tried this before, or you've got me, I'm curious. So I feel like I've heard, heard you before say, oh, if you are more of a person who drinks these types of spirits, I would recommend these types of agricoles versus, you know, if you're more over here, Do you mind kind of giving people a basic primer on where they should start if they're intrigued today? And then perhaps we can talk a little cocktail stuff too.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, in the simplest form, um, you know, people identify visually with spirit. So um, not, but then, you know, that evolves into something else in that, like, if you're somebody that usually I do ask that question, what do you typically drink? If you drink gin or tequila, um, I have you try a, a unaged rum agricole um, and that yes you visually see it and you're like oh it does look like gin oh it does look like a blanc tequila um, but additionally there are a lot of components and a lot of esters that are you know congeners flavor components that are developed in a um, in a blanc rum agricole that are parallel to especially agave spirits Um, there's a lot of like fruity components and esters, uh, flavor compounds that are developed in fermentation that, um, I personally identify with in agave spirits. Um, you know, I live in Southern California and agave is huge here. And the first distillery I ever went to was Fortaleza. And then I went there five more times and, you know, not just because of the proximity, but because, you know, before I fell in love with rum and rum agriculture specifically, I was really into agave, and I think that I think that might be one of the reasons I fell so in love with rum Agricole is because it reminded me of the things I loved most about agave. It was just fresh and fruity and mineral driven, and it really just like um, uh, captured the essence of the true, you know, whatever raw material. Um, so I I often. Um, I often ask that, um, in that same, and we'll talk a little bit, bit more about this with cocktails, but if you're a rum, agricole, blanc, or tequila drinker, I often pair, um, and by the way, those two things mix really well together in a split-based cocktail, um, biological sherry. So like, a Fino or Amontillado, and this is for the real nerds. Um, all three of those things fit really well together. And I feel like if you like one, you'll like all, um, And on the other side of the spectrum, for you know our whiskey drinkers out there, um, whiskey, cognac, um, and even you know there's kind of like subgenres in there. um, When people tell me they like, well, first of all, an aged spirit has a completely different flavor profile um, than an unaged spirit. There's certain um, chemical compounds and like chemical reactions that happen in the barrel with the alcohol that create new flavor profiles that were not possible to create in the unaged spirit, aside from the fact that like the spirits extracting the flavor of the wood and the tannins and, you know, uh, different, different woody vanilla chemical compounds. There's, there's additional like flavors that can develop just from the alcohol reacting with the wood. So that happens with all spirits. Um, so there's definitely some parallels whether you're drinking any any age spirit you're drinking there's definitely some of those parallel uh, flavor profiles but within that segment um you know if somebody tells me they like scotch uh i usually give them a rum that is aged um you know 10 years or old that is much older because especially in martinique the accelerated it's not necessarily accelerated aging, but it has that, um, it has that perception because of the high humidity and the, and the temperature, um, the, the extraction rate is much quicker. So, and especially with Clement, uh, that ocean influence, um, adds almost like a peatiness. So the common, those combinations of things like an aged Clement over 10 years, 10 or 15 year age Clamont, I always push toward a scotch drinker and they're like very surprised. Um, and then for like a bourbon, I usually actually push somebody toward either, you know, one of our, usually actually, we and this is a totally different topic. This would be like some of our St. Lucian rums that are actually made from molasses. So not really what we're talking about today, but bourbon drinkers, I feel like, like that round caramel vanilla flavor profile. So I usually push them toward one of our St. Lucian, um, one of our St. Lucian products. And then uh, like cognac drinkers uh, across the board, um, you know, there's a lot of similarities um, just in the background of I mean our, our age statements are cognac age statements. So that's pretty pretty much uh, a, an easy sell with like the VSOP uh, has a lot of the same flavor characteristics as well that you might recognize from a cognac. And then my other thing is like if somebody specifically says they like rye, um, all the jam aged products have a spice to them. Um, that really is reminiscent of a rye product. So, um, and then to piggyback on the sherry thing, any, um, any, uh, oxidized sherry. So any brown sherry that doesn't have sugar in it. So this would be like an Amontillado or an Oloroso or a Palo, uh, Pelo Cortado. Um, those are great with, in that family of aged products. So. That was a mouthful, sorry. No, that was, <laughs> I
1: was, I was, I was soaking that up. Yeah, for the real nerds, when the sherry conversation comes out, that's when you know you've really hit it right there. But uh, no, that's helpful. Um, when I, before, you know, married like a Fino or Manzanilla in like a margarita, you know, it always like intuitively begins to make sense to me. Okay, yeah, like uh, aged versus unaged, while the flavor profiles can vary, they are, the characteristics become uh, more similar so that's useful to kind of for you to place with me yeah to think about but it's um...
0: also visual like mm-hmm. the dark spirits with the dark sherry and the dark rum and then the the on it you know the light spirits the clear spirits like gin and tequila with the biological sherry with the uh rum blanc like visually it makes sense but so that's a good way to remember it but flavor wise it's also makes sense if you were to do it blind it would make sense too so
1: got it no that's helpful um yeah that was okay so where am I what am I thinking now that was that was good um (laughs) so I heard uh, this really got me intrigued and I don't have it on hand so it's probably going to be something I'm going to do the next couple of days but I heard you talk about I think it was a um a 50 50 martini at one point in time I'd love to hear about that. And then also maybe we should talk about tea punch for a minute too, because obviously we haven't touched on this touchstone drink that many people have or haven't had. So talk to us about, I I think it was during COVID you, you were interviewed and we're talking about, uh, 50, 50 martinis.
0: Yeah. I mean, a little bit of this is stemmed by getting older and, um, traveling around and drinking only so there's only so many daiquiris that my acid reflux can handle um also i love a martini i've always loved a classic martini um and you know but drinking a full martini like not 50 50 full strength is um a, l- a little bit too much um also i love vermouth so it all works out um i like to call it a Martinique. uh you know just just play on words always love a good play on words and pun um i'm i'm, I'm never too uh too good for a pun um yeah no I, I i really it's kind of my drink of choice if i'm not drinking a tea punch i'm drinking a martinique and it's uh it's usually a hundred proof blanc agricole so i'm usually using jam 100 proof blanc or uh Clermont con blue and then uh so 50 50 that 50 percent, so like an ounce and a half and then what I what I do like if I'm being super picky and the bartender not slammed and uh or I know the bartender and I don't feel bad annoying them um <laughs> I'll ask for a split of dry vermouth uh Manzanilla or fino sherry biological sherry and um and blanc vermouth so it's like a half ounce of each half ounce of, sh- of dry sherry uh half ounce of uh, Blanc vermouth, half, half ounce of dry vermouth. And then the secret ingredient is a bar spoon of Suze If you can get your hands on it, um, and a lemon twist and an olive, if you want, you know, why not do both? Everybody likes the snack. Um, but yeah, it's, it's delicious. And I, I think that's the, that's the thing that people need to kind of get out of their minds about cocktails. Um, is that There's not a box that every cocktail needs to go in. Like a a martini doesn't need to go in the gin box. Like a martini is also delicious with tequila, um, a Blanc tequila. Like going back to that, you could absolutely swap out what I just said um, with the same specs with a Blanc tequila, Blanco tequila. Um, So, you know, it's same thing with an old fashioned, like, uh, or we're going to get, you're going to laugh at this as well. uh, An Agri-cold fashioned um, you know, a, an aged rum, old fashioned. Um, and here's the advice you didn't ask for. Um, (laughs) something that I, you know, learned in my days bartending, but is also like a life hack if you're making cocktails at home is that, um, you know, the, the recipe for an old fashioned is traditionally a teaspoon of sugar or one of those little, you know, perfect English looking tea, white sugar cubes, um, and three to four dashes of bitter, but, if you want to like think outside the box and try something different, you can use instead of that um, teaspoon of uh, sugar, you can also use a quarter ounce of any syrup, any homemade syrup that you want to make, you know, just if you're making a simple syrup simmer it with whatever herbs or fruits or whatever, Um, or you can use a half ounce of any liqueur. So that's like kind of the spec for making your at home old fashioned. So, Go crazy, uh, you know, take a half ounce of banana liqueur, put uh two ounces of it's always two ounces uh with this with this um template of aged rum, and then find some chocolate chili bitters or something weird at your local cocktail store, and you know, whatever, go crazy. Like the the possibilities are endless. Everybody's got some weird old liqueur probably sitting in the back of their cabinet. Like you can make an old fashioned with that, and like whatever, choose your adventure. So
1: a uh, a friend of mine in manhattan said that uh banana liqueur was what got him through the uh early part of the of lockdown you know with his old fashions at home right there so there you go
0: it's so, very hot right now the banana liqueur
1: so uh so i'm thinking about the uh the uh wait no, what was the the martini term was was it the uh did you call it the martiniki is that what you called it
0: uh the martini
1: Okay, got it. I got it now. Uh, so, if somebody wanted to take a run at this on their own um, and weren't feeling like flexing fully at the store, would you recommend starting with uh, a Blanc Vermouth, a dry, what, whatever they can get their hands on? Is there is, or if you're ordering in the bartender's busier, uh, what would you? What would be your simpler order on your uh, on your your martini there?
0: It would be driver Um, I mean, it it depends if you want, if you like a little bit of a sweeter martini, then you could go with Blanc. But yeah, I mean, and that's easy because usually the bartender will know what a 50, 50 martini is. So you can just say, but I I do like watching their eyes light up when I say, can I get a 50, 50 martini with that rum agricole? And they're like, what? Okay. Like, it's like a, it's like a, uh, are you crazy? And then it's like, Oh no, maybe that might be good. Um, (laughs) So it's always a fun
1: moment for me. Uh, I bet that's, uh, and that's helpful. And, and, uh, the touch of Sue's I've, I've definitely got written down as well right there. Um, man. Okay. I feel like we've covered a pretty good amount of grounding. Yes. I should say, uh, at tales of the cocktail this year, because we, we just got it here in St. Louis where I am, but, uh, I did get to taste, uh, chairman's reserve, uh, and, uh, it's solid. So, um, yeah, it's uh, if you guys are looking to for your more, uh, if I may, like your more industrial, your, your rum industrial, your 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 uh, molasses based rum, Chairman's Reserve was uh, very very delicious.
0: It is, it is a lot of flavor uh, in its own little category by itself, the Saint Lucian rum category, because there's only the one distillery, and it doesn't really fit in into any of the any of the. You know boxes, I would say it's like somewhere between Barbados and Jamaican rum
1: got it that's helpful, okay um, maybe we'll see if we have a minute for that but i I did want to talk about um you know kind of i mean wherever we are in this pandemic it's over it's it's still going you just you just you know recovered, so I'm glad but uh uh you know obviously covid and it was interesting being at Tails this year where I heard a number of people say that you feel like you know the amount of uh, spirit free presence was really exploding. There's lots of conversations about wellness, work life balance, et cetera. So away from the sugarcane stuff, uh, you're also involved at uh, another round, another rally, and so a lot of times I know that in particular this was very big when bars and restaurants were closed early on in the pandemic, but. Tell us a little bit about that organization because I'd really like to get into how do you, what changes, how are you thinking about how the industry needs to evolve long term?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that there's definitely, I mean, everybody, I, I have a friend who actually put this in the most simple form, though a little bit uh, harsh. Um, he said that. Uh, the pandemic caused us to step away from um in the hospitality industry, it's caused us to step away from an abusive relationship and really reflect on it from an unbiased way. Um whereas when you're in the relationship, it's kind of hard to see what's in front of you. Um so there there are definitely some some things, some systemic problems within the hospitality industry that need to change. And, you know, it's 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 the only industry where um, a lot of owners of restaurants and whatnot and not at their fault this is just how it's always been um, they don't really factor labor into their business plan like they just assume that everything is gonna work off of a tipped system but when you know this is not the way in other countries um, and when you when you base everything on a tipped system um, you're really opening up people's I mean you you're not creating um, a, a solid foundation for anybody to build a life on on because they can't depend on a constant salary. I mean, look what happened during the pandemic. Um, an entire industry lost their salary overnight and did not know what the next day was gonna bring. And most of these people are already living paycheck to paycheck. So you just it just made an unstable uh, industry more unstable. So uh, it really brought some foundational changes to the forefront that need to happen. And, you know, the, the, the tip system, um, is, is really whack. Um, and it's just, it's, it's something that's, that's based on, you know, historical, um, you know, racism and, um, it's something that definitely needs to be changed. And, um, another round, another rally, uh, you know, they're really, first of all, first and foremost, uh, the reason I got involved with them, one of my best friends, um, she had started this, this nonprofit, uh, a couple of years before the pandemic, but, um, they were supposed to have their big launch party, uh, during bartenders weekend in March of 2020. So that obviously didn't happen. Um, and, but they were set up as a educational resource to try and before the pandemic, even, they were set up as an educational resource that was, um, you know, trying to, you know, break some of these systemic practices and, and you know, get rid of the TIP system. And additionally, it was set up as an emergency uh, system for bartenders cause, and for the entire hospitality industry, because most people in the hospitality industry don't have insurance. Um, so, obviously, the one side really took hold when the pandemic started. And, um, you know, it immediately became an emergency resource, um, you know, nonprofit in order to help everybody and uh, in order to uh, cope with the difficulty of seeing all of my friends, because, you know, I come from a bartending background, I just I saw overnight, like all of my friends lose their job, and like live in this dark, uncertain time where they didn't know if they were ever going to step behind the bar again or like, you know, go into a restaurant again or if they were going to lose their restaurant. So um, I, you know, decided in order as a coping mechanism and I, I, I would, you know, spend every hour I could when I wasn't working to save our company Spearbomb, which also, you know, had to figure out how to go all online and set up e-commerce and all this good stuff, uh, which was new to me and figured it out as I went. But um yeah, I spent all my time just, like, trying to help them get online with their systems, and um, luckily, you know, they got a couple huge donations and were able to distribute $500 grants, Um, but, you know, in the first week, there were 70,000 job applicants, like, I mean, and that was just, uh, it was, it was heartbreaking to go through those. Um, and that was the first week, like the first week having that many applications of people already. So, um, so worried. And so like, uh, the anxiety level in the first week was just like insane. So just think like after this kept going on for months and months and months, um, how terrible it was for our industry and, you know no amount of ppp loans um you know or measures passed really was 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 solidifying it um though they did help it really just like put a it put a spotlight on um some of the changes that need to be made within the industry and um i'm happy you know i i still serve on the board and um you know i i have a check in with them once a week um you know just to talk about what's going on and um, and, you know, talk offer my input for upcoming projects and whatnot. But I'm really happy to see um, that, you know, they were able to help so many people. I think they gave away over $3 million in grants um, so far. So most of those COVID related grants. So um, yeah, they, they're, Amanda did a really good uh, seminar at Tails last year, which is still online. That is um, that goes really into detail about um, the tip system, and you know how, um, you know how detrimental it is to the industry, and and, and yet it's ingrained in the industry. So um, it, it's going to take a lot to change it. But and and you know some of the biggest some of the biggest corporations like the National Restaurant Association run propaganda campaigns, um, for it. So there's a lot of barriers to, to get rid of it, but, um, or, you know, in, in the process of eliminating it, but, um, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely, uh, gave everybody a lot of time to think about everything in the industry and like what we can do to make it better. So at the end of the day, it's not all dark. It's, uh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's people, you know, out there fighting to make changes and make it better. So I think, uh, I think, I think we're in a good place and a better place than we were before.
1: That, yeah. I mean, still mostly being someone from the outside looking in. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. That seemed to kind of be some of the sentiment I picked up at tails this year is that, yeah, we did step away from that relationship and hopefully it, um, we're not falling back into all those old habits, uh, other than, and people should, but other than going to another round, another rally, uh, and, you know, learning more, making a donation, are there things people should out there listening, be thinking about the ways that, you know, legislation and other things they should pay attention to. And that might be on the site, but anything you'd recommend for people that are like, yeah, I've heard about this, you know, tips, not being good thing, but what should I do now? Any, any, suggestions on that
0: um i will send you a couple links i think for you to post in this um that i know i have bookmarked um and videos that i can't uh explain it well it's better for you just watch the video or read the article um but i mean you can support restaurants that um have eliminated tipping and you know they they work it into their either the most there are a lot of restaurants now that have eliminated tipping altogether. um uh i mean in in los angeles all of the sugarfish restaurants have done that um i want to say danny meyer as well um and support some of those restaurants and don't support the ones that are i i don't know i don't i don't want to say i i don't want to say the wrong thing so um you know uh just just do your do your research before you um before you give somebody your money I guess with everything and that's 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 all you can do is like do your research before you decide where to spend your money um but you know it it is it's it's heartbreaking too though because you know it's just it's not been in our um in our business plan as like individual entrepreneurs to factor some of these things in, because this is just the way that it's been. So it's like, it's a heartbreaking process. It's like, how, how do independent uh, people that want to start a bar or a restaurant um, that, you know, this was a, this was a dream that they've always had. And they put together this plan because that was the norm. And now the norm is kind of being changed. So you have to factor in like, insurance and labor and all these, you know, different things that didn't used to be something you had to factor into that business plan. So I don't know that I have, I have the answers, um, but you know, to just be as informed as possible and also, um, you know, try and get involved in your local politics a little bit. Um, if there's any sort of, um, measures that are going to benefit your local hospitality industry, um, then that you can, you can help, push by talking to your representatives or, um, going to your town hall, um, and just getting more involved locally in your community. Um, I don't know, there's, there's, I know there's some people in, in Los Angeles in the community that are involved in local politics, um, that, you know, on their social media, if there's something that's going to benefit them, they'll, they'll post it online and, and, you know, say, write a letter to this representative or like, make sure you vote on this measure. Um, I think, especially with me, I wasn't involved in, I wasn't interested in politics in any capacity before the pandemic. And now most of my friends will tell me that I'm a little bit crazy about being too involved in politics. Um, But I I, I think that the beauty of politics is that it's, it's supposed to be, you know, the ideal is a democracy. And the more that we're all educated about what's going on in our own community, like we can affect our community in such a Huge way just by not necessarily being involved in the national everything, like you know, but knowing what's going on in your own neighborhood, you can be, have such an impact just by you know, listening to your local town hall. Um, and there's always something that's going to affect because the restaurant business, the hospitality community is such a huge piece of your local economy, right? So, um, so much that has to do at your local town hall is. is either going to benefit or not um that segment of the industry so just just like just know what's going on in your neighborhood and make informed decisions and it starts from you know the bottom and works its way up so that would be my best advice but also send you some links
1: perfect and i'll be sure to include those but yeah i mean overall national politics or whatever quote unquote sexier but you know the 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 local stuff is what really impacts you for the most part so yeah. Kia, this has been great. So regarding Spirit Bomb, so that's S-P-I-R-I-B-A-M. So people can see your guys' lovely portfolio stuff. But if people want to keep up with you or see your beautiful Instagram, where should they be uh, looking for that?
0: Um, you can find me on Instagram at rummuffin, R-H-U-M-M-U-F-F-I-N long story. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you can find me on Instagram. Um, yeah, I, I, I slide into my DMS.
1: <laughs> okay. There you go. You've gotten the invitation. right Don't there, find guys.
0: me on Facebook. I never, I, I, I stopped doing the Facebook during the pandemic. If you find me on there, I'll never answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, terrific. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been really fun.
1: Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on instagram at decoding cocktails if you think this podcast is great stuff we'd love it if you'd subscribe or of course share an episode with a friend the decoding cocktails podcast is produced by chris bay and myself thanks for listening we'll see you again soon and happy cocktail